1: The birth of a legend.
2: 458 is the total. Out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's the world's record.
1: The
0: crowd roar is... wins the the First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne, And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Yeah. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund.
2: Hello everybody and welcome to the show brought to you by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. It's Julian De sitting in for Sam Edmund. Today I'm joined by a man who glided across the football field for 15 seasons. A player with that rare ability to make time appear to stand still, even in the heaviest of traffic. Nick Del Santo, twice finished top three in the Brownlow medal, was a three-time All-Australian and a best and fairest winner. He also twice came so close to being one of footy's rarest commodities, a St Kilda Premiership player. Now he's making his name in the media, both
1: here at SEN 1116 and Fox Footy. Nick, thanks for joining us. Lovely to be here, Jules. It is, I must say, it's taken you quite a while. I've worked at this radio station for five years. I know this particular program. I've just been waiting for the phone call, and it has finally come through. So I'm looking forward to spending some time with you today. See, I host for one week, and I call you. <laughs> that's so a, that's you, you a, can only blame Sam. That's all it takes, just one phone call. No, looking forward to having a, a chat with you today. Now, a real serious one to start. Mm. Have I had to drag you off the golf course to get in here? <laughs> it's, It appears like you've got the bug big time. <laughs> I do. I, I, I love golf, and I'm not alone. It's not an uncommon um, obsession, it must be said, from a lot of footballers and a lot of people in general. Um, I played yesterday, I must admit, and I have been sporadic at playing golf. And I'm one of those golfers, whenever you say, do you love golf? How often do you play? The answer is always never enough. So off the back of um, COVID last year, I'm a member of a, a lovely golf course down the peninsula called Peninsula Kingswood. And I definitely didn't get my money's worth last year. <laughs> definitely <laughs> didn't play anywhere near enough. And I've got three young kids. So golf is the luxury item. And it's always seems to be the first thing that gets dropped off the to-do list when we have other priorities in our life. But, yes, I am a golf lover, and I don't play enough duels. Are you Brendan Goddard obsessed? Like, Brendan spoke
2: on this show last year. Not only he
1: loves playing, he loves watching,
2: yeah. he loves talking about the equipment, the yep.
1: technology. You're that into it? I'm close. I'm not as obsessed as BJ is. I, I lived with BJ in our early days at St Kilda, which is sort of a story within itself, <laughs> to be completely honest. And BJ and I used to play semi-regularly, you know, around football training, and I used to beat him. Now, I wasn't a brilliant golfer at that stage, and BJ was just starting to get the bug. And he was handy at golf, but then it just went to another level. It got to the point, Jules, where we had Foxtail in the house, and we had it in the main land room. It was my house. BJ was living at my place. And we had another mate, which was one of my mates that I grew up with that BJ ultimately got his own foxtail box in his own bedroom. This is true. Because he is watching so much golf that we said, and I love golf and my mate loves golf as well, but he was watching so much on the main TV downstairs that we said, you can't do this anymore. You need to actually have your own device. Go somewhere <laughs> else. I love watching golf. I obviously love playing golf, but I don't know everything about the stiffness of a shaft and I don't know the different <laughs> grips and the lie angles and all that sort of stuff. So BJ is a different level to me. Well, let's go back where it all began. Now, like so many great
2: sportsmen and footballers, you, you grew up in Bendigo, your parents, Peter and Eileen, sisters, Megan and Sarah. Now, I was reading an article where your mum, your mum always pumps up their own kids with their sporting <laughs> abilities. She said you were fortunate, you were talented, things came naturally, you were a good athlete. Uh, long jump and sprinting, you were a good golfer, you represented Victorian basketball. Well, my mum said all this, she did, she? did she? She wow. did. Um, so it sounds like a typical country upbringing where sport was a massive
1: part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it probably went further than that because they're the things that were probably structured in regards to structured um, sport. But I grew up in the outskirts of Bendigo. Mum and dad have about an acre and a quarter and they still live there. Mum and dad are still based out of Bendigo, even though they are from Kew and I was born in Kew, my old man was and still is in agriculture, hence why we moved to the country, and it was a brilliant place to grow up. I mean, you've listed four or five particular sports, but it wasn't uncommon. Riding your bike was just common practice. You know, the safety of being able to ride to school and then on the ride home, it wasn't often 15 minutes. It was, you know, an hour and a half because you'd go past every dirt bike jump that you could find or every puddle. I had some really close mates that I'm still best mates with to this day that lived within about a kilometre of our house, so... We, we did everything. You know, chip golf balls in the backyard. The one thing I didn't probably play a lot of was cricket. Now, when you speak about yeah. traditional country sports, Correct. it was football in the winter and cricket in the summer. And the only reason I didn't play cricket, I think I played one season competitively. It was about under 14s. I hated standing around. And maybe yeah. that's, you know, it's still me sort of to this day. And I hated not being involved in the, in the action more often, whether it was batting or waiting for someone to go out that I was sitting around for far too much of a Saturday or fielding and I loved bowling and I used to always ask to field in point because I thought point was probably the most common place that the ball could go but outside of that I just felt like I wasn't doing enough exercise or enough energy within the activity I actually took up golf off the back of that That I thought well I like golf maybe I'll start playing that on a Saturday morning but yeah what a place to go up you know Bendigo obviously thrives with basketball, which was a huge part of my life growing up. I I think I finished that when I was about 16. Sort of had to make a bit of a choice about what I enjoyed most. But I was also travelling to Melbourne every Friday night to play competitive basketball. But my whole life was about sport and being outdoors. It was pretty much as simple as that. If Kevin Bartlett's listening, he's going to hate this question. But we went back at the intro I talked about how
2: you seem to have a lot of time on the football field and Scott Penelbury's another one that's similar and he's from a basketball background. That, Mm. That... poise you had on the football field and at times it looked like the game was slow
1: around did you. Was that a natural skill? Where did that sort of come from? Yeah, I think it was natural. I think it has to be because if it's not who you are and now that I analyse the game and, and watch particular players, there's players that you're drawn to and that's a common saying that they make time stand still. And I used to like that. It used to make you feel like it's oh, pretty cool if people acknowledge your game or see your game that particular way. I must say it came naturally in regards to I didn't ever practice it now, the only thing that I ever did that I don't know if every player did was for a stoppage, for example, I used to have like a, a get out clause. You know, if this scenario plays out in a certain way and I'm under pressure, how do I get out of it? So I used to preempt a little bit of it. But I you know, like Scott Penelbury is at another level to me. So I appreciate you <laughs> saying that we're similar players because clearly he's one of the greatest of all time. But players like him, you're drawn to them because the game looks easy. Now, the flip side of that is if you don't have a great game, it looks like you're not trying or you don't care as much. Now, I must say, from my from my experiences, I always had the same intent. It mm. just worked sometimes and other times it didn't. But, no, to answer that question, Jules, I can't ever recall trying to go slower than what I probably looked like. I wasn't the quickest player, maybe a little bit like but You're not the quickest, so you need to bring something else to the table. Otherwise, you will get caught with the ball a lot. Yeah, it's the Mark Waugh syndrome, man. You yes. look
2: natural and if it doesn't come off, it looks like you're not trying. So, with the footy... Um, Manjaring under 12. So yeah. then you, you grew up and you played senior footy at Sandhurst at, at 16. When in your teenage years did you think footy's the game for me and, and this is what I want to do, you know,
1: full time and yeah. at the highest level? It, it's an interesting one because I, I loved all sports and I was obsessed with Michael Jordan. I lo- Michael Jordan was everything to me as a kid. Now, there clearly wasn't social media and you weren't able to watch. Every game of NBA on TV growing up, you know there was a show on a Saturday afternoon. But if you had have asked me as a kid, I wanted to be the next Michael Jordan. Now I remember my mum saying to me numerous times, "Not sure if you're going to be six <laughs> six, not sure if you're going to be athletic enough to be able to do all those sort of things." You know, you probably need to have a plan B. I always loved football, and football was just obviously during the winter, and we played, you know, in the summer at school and mucking around with your mates. But there also wasn't the same focus put on it so the draft wasn't as big as what it is now Um, I was playing under 18 football for Bendigo Pioneer so I was coming to Melbourne and playing against other guys in Melbourne and I'll give you the the story of Chris Judd who got drafted my year he's a year older than I am but all I knew about Chris Judd and this probably puts it in perspective was he lived near the water being from (laughs) Sandringham and that he had sore shoulders now this is arguably one of the greatest of all time but growing up, there just wasn't that same acknowledgement for other people that you were sort of going up against. So, when did football become real serious? Probably my 17th year. I got drafted at the age of 17. But prior to that, I would have loved to have played football and I did love watching football, but I never planned to play for 15 years. It sort of just fell into place and all those little things, um, you know. And w- when you get drafted, the idea that you get to do that every day and, and that's your living and you earn money from it. Like, what more could you really ask for? Like, that's pretty cool. And that was sort of my attitude at the start. And then you learn about the work ethic and trying to make a career out of it. But I wasn't one of those kids from a young age that I wanted to play football and I was going to do everything. I loved playing sport, you know. And if it had been basketball, then I would have loved basketball as well. That sort of was my attitude towards everything. Just going
2: back to the influence of your parents, uh, your dad, Peter, was quite, I think it's around about the 2010 grand final. He spoke about, there was a time there where you didn't read the papers, and he spoke about how he found the emotion of football disproportionate to the value in life. You know, your parents loved it, but at times... Where are you getting you got, all this from? I haven't uh, even heard some uh, of these quotes from my parents. The, I think it was in one of the newspapers. Okay. It was between the first grand final of 2010 and the yep. second. Yep. Uh, and he spoke about how you just got to put that into a perspective. So it seems like that influence from your parents about putting it where it needs yeah. to be was pretty strong. Mum and
1: dad have always been massive on balance. Now... You know, going back to my childhood being obsessed with sport, it was always, well, you probably need to have a plan B. Now, we made an agreement when I was young that if I um, applied myself at school, didn't mean I had to get A's, but if I tried my best at school, that they would support me financially and I didn't have to go get a job because all my spare time was playing sport, you know, basketball, but particularly football as I got a little bit older. But education was always, you know, it needed to be there somewhere. And then I probably learnt that as well in the early years. At, uh of playing senior football as well from the football club but also the encouragement of mum and dad to go to university. Football may not last forever. You may break your leg in your first year and then, you know, you finish by the age of twenty twenty one. So there's all those sort of conversations. Mum and dad have always been hard workers, um, in multiple areas of their life. They've worked really hard. They live a nice lifestyle now. So I always saw almost something tangible. You put in effort and you get a reward for it. So those sort of learnings have been passed on to me, and hopefully, in some small way, I'm passing that on to my three kids as well. At the moment, <laughs> now you had a great start in life because you you supported the Bombers.
2: Yeah. you might yeah, have got off. You might have got off at the right time. Yeah, my favourite
1: player was Timmy Watson. To be honest, Oh, Wispy? the old Wisp was my favourite. Yeah, yeah, same as me. I had absolutely. a budgerigar as a kid, and its name was Timmy. Timmy. Timmy, Timmy the budgie, named after
2: Timmy Watson. That's true. Uh, so you you're a Bombers man. 2001, the super draft. Obviously, the Bombers are coming off. Another grand final, so their pick's late in the first round. Yep. Uh, you ended up going uh, at pick 13 uh, behind a couple of other Saints boys and Xavier Clark and, and Luke Ball. Mm. Did you think ever think you are a chance to get to the club you supported
1: as a boy? Uh, I got interviewed by, now I have to get this right because a couple of clubs weren't there that are there now. So GWS and Gold Coast clearly weren't around when I got drafted. So that means I got interviewed by 15 clubs and one club didn't interview me. That's going to be Adrian Dodora and Essendon. the Bombers. Essendon. I didn't speak to Essendon. <laughs> now, also within that, I wasn't obsessed to go to my favourite club. The idea that you could get drafted was pretty cool. Once again, um, so I met with, as I said, fifteen clubs um, on at the draft combine, but it was up at the it was in the ACT at the AIS training facility. They were the only club I didn't meet with, and then off the back of that, I was seventeen and played some football. I played the majority of the year with the Bendigo Pioneers then a few clubs would come and meet me and my family. Actually, drove to Bendigo to see us face-to-face, of which the Saints were... um, John Beveridge did that at least once, if not twice. So was I devastated not to go to the Bombers? No. Once again, I just felt really fortunate that I got to go to a football club. I didn't know a great deal about St Kilda. I'd never been to St Kilda as a location. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. Um, and I knew a handful of their plays. You know, Robert Harvey, Stuart Lowe, Nathan Burke. You know, some of the greats that were still there. And I got to play a little bit of footy with. But outside of that, I was just thrilled that I got to go somewhere. And you're lucky enough that you made your debut pretty early in your first year. But your first three games mm. were a mixed bag. They were. They were now I'm sure you've got the numbers in front of you so correct me if I'm wrong but my first game was round 4 2002 we played Geelong down at whatever it was called at I that particular th- shell state. yeah whatever it was called yeah. at that particular time we lost by 122 points Aaron Lord I reckon off the top of my head kicked six and I was the only player for St Kilda to kick a goal in the second half it was at a stoppage and I was off I was playing wing and the ball dribbled out the back of a stoppage so towards me and I picked it up and off one step kicked my first goal of my career so that was a nice welcoming it's funny Jules off the back of that game I remember people asked me some friends and some family about smiling so apparently <laughs> I can't remember this so this is their words that as I was, and I started on the bench and I was jogging off the bench I think it was with James Begley and, we, and I was smiling and people said you know why were you smiling I said, I'm getting to play footy. Yeah, it's like, this good. is pretty cool. And I was 17. I might have just turned 18. Yeah, 18. Yeah. Just turned 18. I said, like life's okay. And I knew I had a lot of work to do. And I clearly wasn't a great player um, at that particular age. And we got thumped that game. But I thought, this is pretty cool. And I remember walking off that ground thinking, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. Like I, I'm, I can't compete with some of these or a lot of these guys but if I put in the work, I'll be okay. And that was the, this optimistic sort of feel that I had, that I've got a lot of work to do, but one day I'll be okay and be able to compete. The second game that you mentioned of those first three was against the Sydney Swans at Etihad Stadium, Marvel, whatever it was called <laughs> at that stage as well, Colonial. Uh, we play—we played a draw. I got a free kick about 60 metres out from goal, and the siren went. So in my second game, weighing about 78, 80 kilograms, <laughs> I kicked the ball about 65 metres, got onto the top, I must say, <laughs> And it landed about 15 short. So that was our second game and we flooded. We spent the whole week, we had closed training sessions with Grant Thomas. We practiced flooding. So it's sort of become a little bit more common practice about defensive structures. But this was basically in training. The ball turned over anywhere. Get 18 people (laughs) as far behind the football as you can and just don't let the Swans score. And then my third game, if I'm not mistaken, was against Collingwood. Matty Maguire, Joey Montagna played their first games in that game as well. So it must have been about round six. Six, yep. And we lost by about 86 points off the top of my 87 head. 87 points. 87. Mm. There you go. So that was my f- <laughs> my first three games. I learned a lot in that particular time. We weren't a great team. We had a lot of injuries, which probably gave myself and, you know, Joey Montagna, um, Matty McGuire, Xavier Clark opportunities probably before we were probably ready. But loved it. Loved it. It sounds dreadful when you're losing games like that. But as an 18-year-old, knowing that you get to do this and, the, you know, prepare for games and play with Robert Harvey, Aaron Hamill, You know, Nick Rewalt was in his second year, Cozzy. Like, as as bad as those losses were, life was okay. We knew we were going to be okay at some stage.
2: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And things do quickly pick up for Nick Del Santo and the Saints under Grant Thomas.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives.
2: Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. We're with former St Kilda and North Melbourne star Nick Del Santo. Nick, we know players often love their coaches, but not en masse. Grant Thomas is fascinating. (laughs) If you speak to anyone from your era, particularly the young group, Coming through, and he wasn't everyone's cup of tea. Grant, he could be a straight shooter. He had left field ideas, but it seems, to a
1: man, you just love playing football under him. We did, and I was extremely young, Jules. So once again, just to recap, you know that sort of period of my football career. I got there when I was seventeen. My first day at the football club, my mum and dad dropped me off. Well, actually, they joined us for a barbecue at Grant Thomas's house, which is, well, it was sort of commonplace with Grant. He's got eight children, and then he's taken on a handful of others that used to go to his house frequently. Rewalt was a part of that. He was probably one of eight to ten players that would go to his house all the time. But my first meeting of all the players and a lot of their families was at Grant Thomas's house for a barbecue. Now, it turns out he had a rather large house, and you have to when you've got that (laughs) amount of kids in Brighton. But instantly, you know, living away from home, spending a lot of time with these other young guys that were drafted growing up, you had someone there that, you know, sort of that father figure. Now, I had a great relationship and have a great relationship with my dad, but you had someone that you saw every day from a football perspective that was always there to guide you and help you. And I think the bit that gets undersold, and maybe this is why everyone speaks so highly, of Grant Thomas, that we're involved with him from a playing perspective. I think he gets undersold for the influence that he had on that group. Now, I'm a massive fan of Ross Lyon and will defend Ross and speak to Ross for the rest of my life because I love him as a person and what he did for us. But without Grant Thomas's upbringing for us, I don't think we would have been able to do, with, do what we did with Rossi. We, we learned to appreciate each other. And this is going back a long time. You know, we socialized a lot. We went on training camps before training camps were cool and, and in fad. We went to, you know, we went to London for three weeks. We trained our backsides off, but we had beers together every night. We went to China. We went to South Africa. So we did all these experiences together as a group and socialized together so much that you, you had to become best mates. Now, it wasn't fabricated and it wasn't forced but it, learnt, it taught you to appreciate other people, and I think that always transferred onto the ground somewhere and in some capacity. So without Tom O, I don't think we were going to go on and, and not win a flag, but sort of have that group together for the period that we did. And the results showed on the field pretty quickly. 2004,
2: you charged out of the blocks, won your first 10 games, and then agonisingly short in that mm. prelim against Port. The year after, right in the game at three-quarter time in a, in a prelim against the Swans. Yep.
1: Should have that group won a flag in either of those two years. I don't believe in you deserve anything. And I sort of sit here disappointed because we've got other grand finals to probably speak (laughs) about as well, Jules. I don't think you ever deserve it. You have to work for it and you get what you get, unfortunately, and you don't get upset. It was hard. Now, the one that I often think about, if we had experienced a grand final in 04 or 05 or both, would have we been different in 09 and 10? Possibly, but there's no guarantees for that either. I thought we had a really good team. Like we, we'd grown together over that previous three or four years. We had a handful of guys like Robert Harvey was still, you know, playing brilliant football. Probably not 97, 98 Brownlow sort of stuff, but at a level that few others could go with. Aaron Hamill was a superb player. Fraser Gehrig was in his prime. He you know, kicks 100 go- uh, 100 goals in that prelim against Port Adelaide. So we had so many guys that were in really good form and, and times in their career, we just got beaten by better teams. You know, even Sydney in 2005, were up by about 14 points at three-quarter time. Adam Snyder kicks a handful in the last <laughs> quarter. And I'm good mates with Snyder's, you know, to this day. But I think yeah, it, it just happens. And it's really unfortunate. It wasn't necessarily, you know, poor preparation. We just didn't execute in some critical moments. And that'll carry over to our conversation with those grand finals. But we did everything we could and maybe this is why we sleep easy. You know, We couldn't have done a great deal more, apart from probably execute a little bit better on those particular days.
2: Yeah, we'll get to those other grand finals uh, very shortly. 2005, great year for you. You know, Top three in the Brownlow medal, only two votes behind the winner, Ben Cousins. That year, Kevin Sheedy compares you to the great Ian Stewart. 2006 is a, a bit of a tougher year for the Saints. You have injuries to Lenny, you have injuries to Luke Balls, got the osteitis yeah. pubis,
1: and suddenly you find yourself getting tagged. Mm. How tough was that early days? Well, to be honest, I'd probably started getting tagged a little bit earlier or getting more attention. Um, What was it like? So the one with Lenny going out obviously doesn't help because it takes out (laughs) some sort of option. But the beauty that I think of the best midfields in our midfield group at that time was, for example, if I was to be tagged, that the spread of the workload was okay, that you knew that it wasn't always reliant on one person. So that always gave you some sort of comfort as an individual to know that you didn't have to have your best game but it was based on your effort and how you helped others. And we had a few little tactics that I'm sure still go on today to probably enhance other people's games around you if you are being shut down by a particular tagger. The struggle that I always had with taggers was I was never the best runner. And that, that was my my area that I always worked on. Like I hardly missed a, a training for 15 years, never missed a preseason day, like all those sort of things. I trained as much as I could, but I just wasn't at the level of some of the best runners in the competition. So when you're getting tagged, if you can't outrun your opponent, then they're basically beside you for the whole game. (laughs) Now, someone that works for this station, Kane Corns, for example, who's an exceptional runner. So how am I going to find the football? And the only way that I was able to do it when I probably wasn't getting tagged or on the days that I played okay was anticipation, that you had to try and, you know, play out the scenario a little bit earlier, anticipate where the ball was going to be, you know, leave the contest a little bit earlier before you're, you know, those sort of like tactical things. But I, like, even looking back on it, and I was aware of it at the time, the reason I would get beaten by a tagger is I just couldn't go any faster. I couldn't go, I couldn't, you know. Have another out, year. Yeah, I couldn't outwork them. Um, now, was I slow? No, I'm not slow. I just wasn't exceptionally quick. <laughs> and when you're playing against some of the best athletes in Australia, it, it's hard to make up that ground. So it was a challenge for the majority of my career. You know, I was, um, you know, in some ways it, it's an acknowledgement that the opposition coaching staff think that, you need to be shut down. So I probably got tagged semi-regularly for about 8 to 10 years. You work through it. You get support from your teammates. When everybody's playing well, your numbers always look better anyway. But that was a constant challenge, particularly when you're young, particularly when you've never had to deal with it before, when you're thinking, oh, my God, am I?" you, know, you feel so isolated at times. How am I going to get a kick? You walk off at quarter time, you've had three touches and no impact on the game. And, you know, you get in your own head a little bit, but you get support as well, and you've always got someone to talk to. That's the beauty of a footy club. Who was the toughest? Um, oh, Cameron Ling was solid. Mm. Yeah, Cameron Ling, and I'd also like to include Geelong as a whole with that because when you are getting tagged and you have those moments where you get away from your opponent, Geelong were exceptional about having like a team target. So if they've mentioned my name or Lenny's name or Goddard's name, whoever's name it was in a pre-game meeting, if I ever got out for example, someone was always going to man you up. You never ran around by yourself for a minute. It might have been 10 seconds before Max Rook, for example, goes, okay, there's so-and-so free. I know he's a team target. Cameron Ling's obviously been called out. I'm going to go get him for the next minute until Lingy can come back. You think, thank God i finally got a bit of space. And then before you know it, someone's bumped you without looking. <laughs> so Lingy and Geelong were exceptional. You always knew that was going to be a tough game. Kane Corns, because he, he's a running ability. Port was such a good team as well, so it was hard to get a touch at the best of times. But I had guys early days, Lucuria, Peveril was was solid early days. Um, Andrew Carrazzo at particular times at Carlton when they sort of you know changed their mindset a little bit because early days they were a bit wishy washy and you could find the football pretty much whenever you wanted, and we used to beat them comfortably. But I think anyone on their particular day when someone has the mindset from a defensive perspective, and we had Clint Jones for a lot of my career from a Saints perspective, if you have the mindset, hey, I'm not going to go try and find the football. I'm just going to shut this person down. All you're doing is being a caravan, just trailing behind a meter, behind a particular player for two hours a weekend. So they're all hard in their own right. So then end of 2006, Grant Thomas is sacked, which was
2: a a shock to everyone at the time. Then Ross Lyon arrives, and he leaves Mm. a big impression on everyone, a man with a lot of uh, idiosyncrasies, (laughs) Ross Lyon. Yes, yes. A man that you
1: impersonate quite well. When did he become aware that you impersonated him? Um, and did you ever get caught? I did, and that's probably where he became aware. Now, Ross doesn't know that he's funny. Like, this is the the other bit. Like Ross is hilarious. He was when he was our coach. I probably found him funnier when he was Fremantle's coach. I'd be watching a press conference post the game, and he'd be doing you know all the same little weird little you know twitches or whatever he'd be doing he used to say very similar things about describing his team that he used to say with us he'd just substitute in a free man or player's name but there was a particular day so we were at um seaford training facility so it must have been about 2011 or so and rossi had a rule you could never be late to a meeting it was a sign of disrespect and all those things in football clubs that are no-go zones but he, we had, had these big sliding doors. So as soon as the nine o'clock meeting, for example, was on, the doors were shut. And if you were late, then then bad luck. You got locked out and you'd have to follow up in your own time with the, with the uh, learnings from that particular day. So we were never late. Get there at quarter to nine, for example, and you had 15 minutes. And I can't even remember why we are doing I don't even know why I had the nerve to get up and impersonate the coach. But I did. And there was a particular day that he walked in and he saw it and he was perfectly fine. we'd obviously build a relationship at this stage. And he said, carry on. Like, keep going, Dale. You're fine. And I, so I did a little bit more and then I got out of there. And that was pretty much you don't the, think
2: the, he, I, the start of it. You don't think Ross thinks he's funny? I feel like he nah. knows he's
1: quite sharp. I mean, we still catch up with him, you know, every now and then. We'll have dinner. And we now can probably talk a little bit more openly about it. When it's your senior coach, you don't have these... You know, there's still a little bit of hierarchy in there somewhere that you don't feel quite as comfortable to speak in front of your coach. But now, more as a mate and someone that you still respect, you sort of say, "You know, did you know you were doing that at the time?" But then, he, when he's answering that question, he'll do something funny again. And I don't—I just don't think that he sees the funny side in you know even his hand <laughs> movements and the way he'll answer a question. He's press conferences, gold—a classic. Now, if I was those journo's or reporters, I'd probably feel a little bit uncomfortable, and probably rightly so. But as someone just sitting back and joining it, it is very, very So amusing. your
2: impersonation, is it more his walk? It's it more the, way the walk, talks? yeah.
1: It's, it's the hand. He always has a hand up beside him for no reason. He has a pen behind the ear or holding a pen up. But one that he used to always do, and maybe this is an issue with football, is that we were very much creatures of habit, that we would always sit in the same seat in the theatreette, for example, Jules. And I don't know why we did it, but we literally sat in the exact same seat for 15 years. But we'd come in on a Monday morning, and Rossi loves Lenny, as everyone does. Loved Lenny Hayes. Now, it wasn't because Lenny would have a heap of the football. It was about the way that he went about it. And he'd call him, you know, heroic and a warrior, and we respect you, Lenny. We love you, Lenny, and all these things. And then as he'd go to actually address Lenny, he would always ask, where's Lenny? Now, Lenny's been sitting in the same seat, Jules, for 16 years. I think he played for 16 or maybe longer, 17 years. He sat in the same seat for 17 years. And it'd be a Monday morning. We never miss training anyway, but he would always have to ask, is Lenny here? Now, Lenny was so modest that he would never put his hand up or acknowledge that he was getting you know, singled out for a compliment. And I used to just find it staggering that Ross would think Lenny would have the nerve not to turn up to training on a Monday morning. He knew that he sat in the same seat for 17 years, so he knew where to go. But he would always have to ask after complimenting Lenny, and we love you, Lenny, and you're, you know, you're enormous Lenny. Is Lenny here? Is, I was like, you've been speaking for five minutes, Ross. Clearly, Lenny's in the room. There's nowhere else to be on a Monday. But um, uh, he is so many. My, Michael Ricks, who is, is a name that a lot of people won't know, he used to have a notepad that he'd have underneath his seat. Now, he played at the Saints for, I'd say, two or three years. One of the greatest people you'll ever meet. Lovely. He used to write down Ross line quotes in a meeting, secretly. He'd get his um, notepad out, write down something funny that Ross would say. And on mad Mondays, every hour, he would get up, and read out 10 Ross Lyon sayings, <laughs> And we'd just be in stitches. We loved it. And he'd try and impersonate him and everything that went with Rossi. But a great person. And he was always one of the boys, Rossi. And I think that's the one bit when you hear people speak about Ross with affection. It was never us versus them. It was neither the coaches and the players. It was us. You know, I didn't coach very well today. You guys didn't play well today. It was never, you know, you you never pointed the finger. You got a favourite saying? Um... Oh. A few of them would probably have swear words in them, which I probably can't say. Um, he used to t- talk about a look-away handball. And I, I still don't understand what it actually means, but it was called a hot dog. And he would impersonate and say, you know, you guys are getting ahead of yourselves. And he'd go, hot dog, hot dog, hot dog. <laughs> and still to this day, and I probably need to follow, I don't know what that means, but we used to talk about it a lot. He accused Jimmy grill of thinking that he was uh, Bobby Skilton. At half time, that he thought he could kick it like Bobby Skilton, which we talk about a bit. Now, Jimmy Good didn't know who Bobby Skilton was. It had all these things, but he had this incredible memory, Rossi, and would just, you know, you've, Jules, you've kicked it into the man on the mark. He did it, you know, four years ago in round five. And that poor player's thinking, round five. <laughs> you like He goes, against Collingwood. You're, and you go, oh, I can't even remember what I was doing last week, but he knew everything and knows everything, Rossi. Now, I'm tipping. You weren't laughing
2: midway through 2008 when yourself mm. and Stephen Milne were dropped. I looked at your numbers. The previous six weeks, you've averaged 25 and kicked a goal a game. Oh, I said high yeah. standards tonight, yeah. I You must have. Milne was, you know, on the numbers,
1: looked yeah. like he was okay. Was yeah. that,
2: I think, one of Ross Lyons saying, was that shoot two to teach a thousand? Yeah, it was a
1: bit of that. Now, I have also said in hindsight, it's the only mistake Ross Line has ever made <laughs> by dropping Milne. And I, actually, to be completely honest, I didn't know my numbers were that good. Um, but to put it in perspective, we weren't going well. So that's 2008. So we'd come off a couple of years of growing and building together, and we only ever assessed ourselves on effort. It wasn't about numbers, and numbers can be a bit deceptive at times, and maybe this is a really good example of that, Jules, that those numbers look nice. Um, maybe, I can't recall ever doing this, maybe I knew that my numbers were okay, so I felt like I was going okay as well. Um but we were playing poor football as a team. I reckon that was about the halfway mark of the year. We were about 50, 50 win-loss mm-hmm. ratio. I wasn't playing great football. Um, and I would obviously set a higher standard than what I was delivering based on my effort as well as my output. We played Sydney in that game that I got ended up getting dropped by. And I remember I was getting tagged by Jared McVeigh, who's a great player. And you speak about effort and you speak about, you know, something special. He is that person for Sydney and has been for a long period of time. And I remember one particular passage of play where I made a really poor decision to run out of their forward line, so Saints back line, and I basically left Jared McVeigh all by himself. Now, he was tagging me, and I didn't show him any respect. The ball got turned over, kicked it to McVeigh, who I was 50 metres away from, turns around and kicks an easy goal. And I remember that because I thought it probably highlighted my mindset opposed to what I should have been doing. Um, and I saw, and we, we, we lost that game. I got moved to the back line, so Joey Montagna and I, and maybe Milne... I can't remember if Milne did it as well. For the second half, Ross said, if you're not going to defend and you're not going to do what the team asks, then I'm going to make you learn. And Joey and I went to the back line. I think we actually played okay. Like you know, you, I won't swear on, on this show, but you, you're nervous in the back line because every mistake is worth a goal, opposed to in the midfield where it's just a kick against. But then I knew post that game, I didn't know if I was going to get dropped, but I remember thinking I'm on... You know, knife's edge here. I need to have a really good week of training, and I need to you know give better effort and have better results. Otherwise, my spot might be in jeopardy. I remember I left training on a. I think it was a Wednesday night that we had training that following week after that game. I went straight home. I thought if I leave straight away after having my ice baths and recovering, he can't drop me because I'm not at the footy club. <laughs> that was my mindset. I was about 24. Like I was I wasn't overly old, and uh, I got a phone call from Greg Hutchinson and said come on back into the footy club. And I only lived five minutes away. I said, all oh, right, no worries. So I drove really slowly down. You was coming. Yeah. And, and you know what? And, and, this was, and this is the follow-on conversation. If someone's going to give me that feedback, Jules, and maybe this is for life as well, and I don't mean to be a preacher, but if, if someone's prepared to give you that feedback and say, we value you, we want you to be a better player, but you're not doing it right now, and you need to go back and get better at the game, then it's on me to take that on. I was never one to point the finger and make excuses. I, I copped it. I copped it on the chin. Did I agree with it? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Now, I probably felt there was other players that weren't weren't doing a great deal. But it was more than just your output. You know, there was something greater than that or needed to be more than that. So I went back and played that game against Coburg at Coburg with Milne. Milne had a ripper game. I can't remember the exact numbers, but he played really well. I gave great effort. My numbers weren't exceptional. I got tagged. I'm running around in the mud, Jules. <laughs> 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 had to bring, you know, I had to bring my own football boots to the game for the first time in six years. And, you know, your jumper wasn't folded out the front of your locker. And the showers weren't perfect after, you know, all that sort of stuff. But maybe that's what, it, you know, it just took a little bit of just getting back to basics. Mm. Anyway, so I had a crack and I got back into the team the following week. We played North Melbourne up at, which is now um, Gold Coast Stadium. So I can't remember what it was called. Just Carrara that time. Carrara yeah. yeah Played North Melbourne So I've just come off the back Of getting dropped Wasn't playing great football For the first part of the year anyway I get tagged by Brady Rawlings <laughs> And I remember thinking How am I going here Like seriously, I'm just battling away You know last week I wasn't even in St Kilda's Best 22 players And Brady Rawlings I should have mentioned him before When you asked me about taggers He's a good tagger <laughs> And I remember thinking, you know what? It's not about my numbers today. I'm just going to have a crack. I'm going to give effort. I'm going to chase every time that I think that I can. I'm going to lay tackles if I feel like I can. And my game was okay. It wasn't brewing. I think I missed a goal late. We won the game. We came back um, in the second half and won the game, which led into the mid-season bye. Had some beers and relaxed with the boys, and then we were better probably off the back of that. Now, the one bit that I will say as a whole People say that was the turning point for St Kilda that Milne and I got dropped. I disagree with that. I think we were building anyway. Um, I think for Milne and I, it was a bit of a wake up call that there was more effort to give and that the team valued us and needed us more than what we'd been delivering for that first part of 2011. But I'd hate to think that if we weren't dropped, that we weren't going to go on for the next four years and, you know, win a heap of football games. It needed to be more than that, and I think that it was. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you
2: by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Next, Nick Del Santo comes so close to Premiership glory, not once, but twice.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
2: Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with St Kilda and North Melbourne great Nick Del Santo. Nick, let's get on to 2009. I think everyone will agree that the Saints were the best team for the majority. Of 2009. Then that grand final, some staggering numbers at halftime. Plus mm. 22 inside 50s for the Saints. You've had six more scoring shots. And in the end, you go down, basically by a kick. Max yeah. Rook kicks a goal on the siren to make it two goals. I mean, how do you look back on, on that opportunity?
1: Yeah, as an opportunity that was missed. Now, we were a very good side, Jules. We were an exceptional side that particular year. And we were for a couple of years, sort of, around that period. The Cats were too, though. Like, let's not take anything away from... I think we lost, we'd lost. lost two games leading into finals. So it must have been 20 and 2. I reckon the Cats were like 19 and 3. Now, we'd played them around 14, 2009, as people say, one of the, the best regular season games. Our team was good, but so were they. And that's why we had some fantastic battles together. How do I look at that 2009 grand final? Outside of maybe some missed opportunities early, and I could probably name names, but there's no <laughs> point. They missed goals that they would normally kick with their eyes closed on their opposite foot, standing upside down, all that sort of stuff. As a player, you're probably not aware of the differential. I didn't even know we were plus 22 with inside 50s. So you just know that you're in the game. And I've always said this, particularly about midfielders. Because there's always something to do. You know, you've got to defend. You've got to go forward. You're setting up a, a zone. Like whatever it may be, you actually miss a lot of the detail of the game. And I'll give the example. Didn't know that Tom Hawkins' kick hit the post. Didn't know that Maddie Scarlett's toe poke was the difference until, you know, six months later when someone brings it up. Like, you're so involved and focused on moments within games, every moment of every game, that you actually miss a lot of the detail unless you're obviously directly involved in it. How do I look at it? Missed opportunity... Um, the chance that we had to be something special for St Kilda and that's maybe more, you know, not playing football anymore. And I do a little bit of work at the saints and walking through and seeing how the 1966 team is held up and, you know, their photos around and the way that you speak about them. I'm sad that our group's not a part of that. I'm sad that we didn't get to bring joy for everybody involved directly with the footy club, but supporters and members and, you know, you still get those people saying, you know, oh, I saw 66 or I'm not going to die until we win one. That Those sort of people don't get to, you know, to share that with us. And, you know, you see the tides of the last four years, but going back to their first flag, how significant that was for them. Now, we don't have the same supporter base at the Saints, but it's that same passion. Mm-hmm. And football brings passion. And when we talk about it, you get a bit emotional about all the things that happened that day and how you felt after the game. And, you know, I, I remember seeing you know, grown men crying in the rooms post the game, not being able to talk and choked up. And, you know, I was sad and really emotional. And, you know, just how do I feel? You know, am I meant to feel like this? This is directly after the game. You're sitting in the coaches' meeting. But when men cry, you cry. Like, it, it hurts, you know. And then we went to the aftermatch um, function. And I remember Stephen Baker in tears. We got there first before the doors were open. We all went to our tables. I remember Bakes, you know, and Lenny hugging Bakes at the dinner table when we're wearing suits and you just... Like those sort of things. That's the feeling of. I wish we got to celebrate something together. Now we all we catch up and we see each other a lot. That particular group and we we have a, a regular um, lunch into drinks into dinner into drinks <laughs> into not go home for a couple of days, sort of. But we do that because we love seeing each other, and you know we've shared so many stories together. And clearly, I wish that we were catching up because we had a medal to share as well, but. The only way that I feel like I can make myself feel okay about it is, once again, we couldn't have done any more. Like we trained our backside off for 10 years to get to that point, eight years to get to that point. We just didn't execute. We just missed some kicks, you know, and Geelong take their opportunity. I think it's as simple as that. And maybe that's how fine a detail it is when you're playing against teams like the Cats. So 12 months later, you get another opportunity against Collingwood.
2: And I mm. guess 2009 for all of you and yourself, grand final week was all new. Yep. Twelve
1: months later it was a bit of a different build-up for yourself because of that uh, a little niggle. Yeah. I tweaked a hammy. I don't know how you know this. I didn't know this was sort of public to be completely honest. Because <laughs> we kept it we kept it quiet. We did a good job. I tweaked my hammy in the my left hammy in the prelim against the Western Bulldogs. Um, now I don't know, I still don't know a great deal about all the muscles in your hamstring. It wasn't the major one, so it was one of the minor ones. But I knew that I'd tweaked it and I haven't hadn't done a hammy pretty much my whole life. I only ever did one in my second last year where I actually snapped the tendon and got surgery. So I knew I'd done something then. I knew I'd tweaked it, um, had a week of nervousness that, one, I was going to play, and if I re-injured it, I, I were going to be a man down. I'd let down the team and an opportunity to win a grand final. Or two, I was just going to miss out on w- playing in a premiership, really. But the, the club was fantastic. You know, I got additional treatment. I was going to the club, you know, obviously all day in preparation, but then was going back at night and getting additional massage and um doing everything i can't remember if i did hyperbaric for that or that that might have been a different injury but basically did whatever i you know could do they gave me a cd that i would play as i'm going to bed it was a relaxation but it was about must mean subconsciously blood flow and healing and i remember i'd go straight to sleep and my poor it was my girlfriend at the time now my wife couldn't sleep because i've got this uh, this voice speaking over and over in the um (laughs) in the bedroom but i went into that game knowing that i was okay and that if I had have re-injured it, it was almost like a re- a new injury. I, I went in perfectly fine. But I also went into that game knowing that probably Collingwood were a better team. They'd had a much better year than we had, which was different to the year before. Um, that we needed to play some really good football to, to win that game against the Pies. Now, ultimately, and this is where my memory... And I haven't watched any of these games. I'm sort of trying to go a little bit on memory. I've seen some of the highlights. But I reckon Travis Cloak missed a goal just before half time to put him up by about 30 points. We went in about 23, 24 points down. I used to always get a flush massage, just like a really quick, you know, of the hamstrings and the calves just to relax the legs at halftime. Remember Nick Rewalt walking through the rooms and we used to pride ourselves on playing the moment, you know, never giving up, whether we're up or whether we're down. I remember Rui walking through the rooms going, we love this moment. We've prepared for this for eight years. We know exactly what to do. We know how to execute. And not that I was necessarily in any doubt that I thought that we were out of the game. But I remember thinking, we're right in this. You know, we just need to take our chances, execute. I can't remember what my particular stats were, but, you know, contribute in my particular way, get my hands on the football, and we're going to be right in this. Now, obviously, we were a draw in that particular game. So, once again, close. People say, if it had it been extra time, Saints had all the momentum. I don't agree with that, and I hate to say that for St Kilda supporters, <laughs> but h- how do you know what was going to happen for the next five minutes, ten minutes? Collingwood kick one goal and they win the game anyway. So I'm not sold on the momentum part of that particular grand final.
2: Going back to the injury, because that grand
1: final, Simon Como yep. withdrew. Yep. He wasn't confident he could get through. Did, did
2: you ever think about
1: that? Uh, I, I did think about it because I had to say and and openly speak to the doctors and the physios and maybe the coaching staff on a lesser degree, but at that stage it was let's assess it. That if I'm not right, I can't do it. And it was going to break my heart mm. knowing about 09's missed opportunity and then possibly missing out completely in 10. But I did training. I did an additional kicking and fitness test after training. And I knew at that point I was okay. Was I 100%? Well, I probably wasn't going into the game 100% anyway. No one was. But I knew I wasn't going to be dragging my backside around, that I was, you know, sore. I had extra strapping on my hamstring. Um, and I remember the first passage of playing that grand final. I reckon it came straight out of the middle. I reckon Darren Jolly booted a goal from basically the goal line. It went pretty much straight down their end. And I had to work my way out of the centre square bounce. And I knew instantly that I was fine. I wasn't going to be hampered. I could run freely. I just couldn't get a lot of the footy that day. I reckon from memory, Jules.
2: <laughs> now a lot of talk after that grand final was about the way Collingwood approached it. You know, mm. it's half time and these sort of things. Yeah. And, and Brendan Goddard, when we had him on this show, was. He doesn't think that yeah. had any impact. Yeah. He just believes St Kilda was spent, yep. basically. Do you agree with that? Or, and Or looking back, is there anything different you could have done between the first grand final and the second grand yep. final to get a better performance?
1: I agree with BJ. I think it's absolute rubbish. I think it sounds great in hindsight that they did something different to us. I mean, we went home and prepared like there was another game the next week. And we used to speak about rounds. So grand final was round 25 or 26. It wasn't grand final day. We used to speak about hours of work. You know, we've got six hours of work to go until the season's you know grand final day. So we just added another two hours of work on that. We had seven more days to prepare for one more game of footy. Um, no, I don't agree that us not going to our aftermatch pre organised function was the difference between us getting thumped the next week. Absolutely not. I think it sounds nice as a story from a Collingwood perspective that they carried out carried out their fulfilment. Oh, sorry, their commitment and fulfilled that. So I agree with BJ in that example. Now, I had no idea that we had so many guys that were injured. I had no idea that we were getting guys getting so many jabs to numb parts of their body to play in the initial grand final, let alone the replay. I had no idea about that. I didn't know that we had 12 or 15 guys that went and got surgery a week after the replay. I didn't know we were that banged up. So I didn't realize we had so many guys that were injured, Jules. I mean, at that time of the year, everybody's carrying something. You often hear that. God, it's not uncommon for guys to get a local anaesthetic to numb their particular part of their body. You take Toradol, for example, which is a strong anti inflammatory painkiller. So I was doing those sort of things, which wasn't really uncommon. But once again, in hindsight, realising that guys were, like 12 to 15 guys were getting jabs and 12 to 15 guys got surgery a week or so after the grand final, I didn't realise we were that banged up at that particular time. But I actually thought we were more chance of winning the replay, from a mental perspective, I thought we were more mature, we'd experienced more, we were mentally, you know, we were resilient, we were a strong group. The Pies were young. They had an experience. I actually thought we were more chance mentally to do, you know, to win the game the second time around. Clearly I was wrong. I mean, they beat us by 56 odd points, whatever the number was. But they they were a better team. There's no doubt about that. They were actually a better team and had played more consistent, better football than us for the whole year. And they just... Yeah, maybe 56 was the right number. Maybe that's a bit too high, but they were a better team. We needed everything to go right to win that one. So you go on a break, the club comes back to training, and then
2: just before you're going to bake for Christmas, the club's engulfed in the so-called St Kilda schoolgirl yeah. scandal, which yeah. you inadvertently are, are dragged into via yeah. a, a photo. Mm. I mean,
1: how was that for you at the time? And, and I guess your family as well. Yeah, not ideal. I mean... I mean, there's different layers to this has been going for 10 odd years and it's getting brought up again, <laughs> which is just crazy. To put it really basically, so that to put it really basic, that photo of Rui came out, then myself the afternoon, the same afternoon, was our last day of training 2010 before Christmas. So that was, you know, a month or two into our pre-season. And obviously came out of nowhere. I've never met her, had never met her, and still to this day have never seen her in person. The photos were stolen, and, you know, now we know the story. The photos were stolen off a teammate, Sam Gilbert's, computer, downloaded or emailed to a file, which she stole. And it's as simple as that. So my attitude at the time was I had a girlfriend, which is now my wife. I said, well, what can I do about it? You know, like, it's out of my control. It's out there. You know, people have jokes about it, and, you know, it's sort of got a bit of a ring about it, the, the St killed a schoolgirl. But it was sort of done. Like I had nothing to do with it, and still to this day have nothing to do with it. Um, I'd gone, I'd organised a holiday anyway, just by coincidence, but it worked out perfectly. So I had, so that photo came out. Christmas was a handful of days later, and then I was going to Ely Beach with my girlfriend, about four other couples as well. So we went there for about ten days. So we were sort of out of Victoria and, and missed all that sort of stuff. But then when you come back, then there was other layers with Ricky Nixon and all that sort of stuff. But once again. I had nothing to do with it. I'd never met her. The photos were stolen from a trip that we'd been on nearly 12 months earlier in Vegas. It was it was as simple as that. So I'm, you know, I understand people like the story or think that the story's pretty, you know, cushy and all, you know, all those sort of stuff, but the reality is a 17-year-old girl stole photos and it's sort of as, as simple as that. Now, there was a little bit of other stuff that happened off the back of it with some death threats and all this sort of stuff from random whatever, but... It was, um, my attitude towards it was, I can't control it, it's happened, and, you know, I will just manage it and handle it from here, and that was sort of the end of the story. So you mean you got death threats? Yeah, I received one. Yeah, a handful of us did, from someone random. It was a letter. So we got a letter in our letterbox, which worried me, and that's why... I As <laughs> said at home? At home, at my house. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was clearly after the fact, um, which we had to get the club involved in a thing, but nothing obviously ever came of it. I'm still here, Jules. Um... But, uh, but that's not ideal. That's not ideal. But, you know, I had, as I said, a girlfriend at the time that was supportive. Um, we sort of we told the club the story, and it was sort of the end of it. It just wasn't handled very well from from a few other people's uh, perspective.
2: <laughs> now, that was a big story, but it, really, to be honest, nothing compared to what happened 12 months later. What I happened mean, 12 months well, later? Well, if Grant Thomas getting sacked was big, yeah. Ross Lyon flying the coop to Fremantle was mm. seismic. Yes. I mean... What Can you remember your initial reaction when you heard Ross was
1: going? Shock. Because no one knew about it, yeah, apart shock. from a couple of people. Now, you'll probably know this better than I do with, with the days, but I reckon it happened on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. I'd just gone to Jason Blake's house for dinner, but I'd had a day socialising with a lot of the players, or the, nearly all the players, and I'd also gone out for dinner after that with Rossi and a handful of the players as well. And there was no conversation about it, didn't know anything about it. Now, clearly behind the scenes, which we now now know the story better that there'd been some chats and a few little things bubbling away We, I wasn't privy to that I didn't know anything about it we'd also had a must have been a Wednesday because I reckon we had an exit meeting at the football club where the fitness staff will hand out the training program for the eight to ten weeks holiday that you're about to go on um, particular areas of improvement from an individual perspective a little bit of a review of the year Rossi took the whole thing So it wasn't like he'd... That was on a Wednesday morning, I reckon, after our last game. So he hadn't made that decision until that night. And I remember walking into Jason Blake's house and his girlfriend, now his wife, was there and getting a text message, I think that it was, or someone notified us that Rossi's just gone to Freo. I remember thinking, that's unusual. I saw him this morning and everything was fine. I had socialised with him on the weekend, having some beers and some food. Nothing was mentioned then. That was a big one. It really was, because we'd been through a lot together. Obviously, we're huge fans of Ross as the coach, but also the person. But by saying that as well, Jules, it was sort of the end of our group. You know, a lot of players had been retired or delisted, Of that we'd grown up together. It was just sad to see the coach go as well. At the time, there was so
2: much anger towards Ross. You know, he's betrayed St Kilda, he's betrayed Mark Harvey. But in hindsight, and when you reflect it a bit longer... Was there an anger there towards the
1: club that you had the chance to sign mm, this guy, yeah, and you didn't do it, yeah, and you left the door open? I was never angry at the club. No, I think anger's the wrong word. I was disappointed. You know, I was. I, I believed in Ross in regards to you know everything from game plan to education to, and I think there's there's a lot of doubt about people like Ross and other coaches. Clarko is getting mentioned at the moment about can they read, you know, can they develop a group? Can they actually go through a rebuild? I think that's taken away from their ability. You know, because those guys have been successful in regards to winning flags or winning a lot of games, as Ross has, you actually forget that they've got to do the hard work as well. Like, their whole job is to educate and support players. Now, they they don't just jump ship as soon as things, you know, as soon as that team's not going really well. So I think they all, the majority of coaches, maybe all of them, could rebuild, regrow a group together and actually join in that journey so I think Ross could have done that. And we saw you know, glimpses of that at Fremantle as well. But I was never angry at the club. I was just disappointed that it didn't get sorted in a way that would have made everybody happy.
2: We're talking to Nick Del Santo on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. we we'll are about to chat to Nick about swapping from Seaford to the shin bonus.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's
2: been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. St Kilda and North Melbourne star Nick Del Santo has been our guest today. Nick, so Ross Line goes, Scott Waters comes in. It didn't seem like
1: it was a happy club for a couple of years there under Scott Waters. Yeah. Why? What well, went wrong? Well, there's there's probably multiple reasons to be completely honest, Jules. Who was ever going to be able to replace how we felt about Ross, you know, and the, the time that we'd spent together? And maybe winning covers up a lot of the cracks. But you're happy when you're winning games of footy. So we had a, such a good time with Ross, and he was a part of it. So whoever was going to come in after Ross, he was probably up against it. By saying that, at no stage did we not like Scott Waters we weren't playing great football. Um, he was really different to Ross and everything that we'd sort of grown up and believed in and you know the way that we treated each other and all of those sort of smaller details within a field, uh, within a footy club and we probably bundle it up and use the word culture, you know, it's standards, accountability, all those sort of fluffy words now. But it was definitely different, but also what was happening within that Jules was a changing of the guard in regards to young kids needed to play more football. We understood that as senior players. But there's no doubt that our relationship with Scotty was nothing like, and their personality types were not the same. So that took a bit of an adjustment, absolutely. And then there was change. So Brennan Goddard leaves at the
2: end of 2012 to go yep. to Essendon. And in the following year, Ben McAvoy and yourself leave. 260 games for the Saints. Hmm. Looking from the outside, it's hard to fathom, and from a St Kilda point, fan's point of view, that a 260-game player can be traded
1: by mutual consent. I mean, Yeah. or is
2: it a bit more complicated?
1: Than yeah, that? it's a, well, okay, this is my take on it. So, please take that into consideration. So, this is how I saw it. So, I had a year left on a contract. So, I left with one year left on a contract for some healthy money. Money that I'm not earning these days, Jules Let's put it that way. <laughs> money that my, my accountant's probably saying, well, why did you leave? But, the reality of it was, BJ left the year before, Benny McAvoy was, I reckon, about the same time, maybe a week before or after I ultimately left. There was people at the football club in positions of power that were prepared to make changes, and significant ones. I never asked to leave. I never thought about ever changing football clubs from the age of 17 when I got there. I thought I'd finish my career there until you start to hear enough stories that they're shopping you around, that they are asking the question to other football clubs, if I was on the table... What would you give us in return? Now, if it was something that was not not appropriate, they'd say, "Okay, no, not on the table, not on the table." So those stories were starting to filter back through different channels, and then I ultimately realised that the way the where the football club was at and the people that were making the decisions, I wasn't in a long term plan anyway. That I felt I had a one year deal left. After, that, uh, after I ultimately left, that that might be my last year of footy anyway. So then you start to have to work out, what's your next case? You know, what's the best case scenario from here? I met with North Melbourne and Essendon after the footy season, so no one during the football season. I finished that last game in the 2013, which was Jason Blake, Cozzy's, Milne's last game. We played Frio. Rossi brought over the under-17 team. We thumped <laughs> them in one of our more, most enjoyable games. I even walked off the ground that day, not thinking that I wasn't going to be at St Kilda. It wasn't that definitive, and I'd never thought about leaving. But then it got to the point where they didn't, you know, there was enough talk that they were looking to move me on. They were trying to get some young kids into the football club, which you sort of understand as well. Like yeah. But yeah. that must have hurt a bit. A little bit. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I'm, I mean, I always felt like I was pretty calculated in regards to my football, but you're also emotional. I mean, the bit that I miss about football even to this day is the connectiveness. You know, you belong to something. And I'd grown up with those guys since I was 18. And for the first time in my life, you know, my key to get into the football club wouldn't work. You know, you, you don't belong to that club anymore. So that was sort of the emotions that I was going through. But then I met with North Melbourne. I met with Brad Scott. And I thought, you know what? If I'm not at St Kilda, I'm going to be really happy at North Melbourne. And that was sort of the next stage that I moved on. And I'd seen a lot of teammates come and go over the years. Some by choice, some forced out. And uh, it was just happened to be my turn. So I went to the Kangas as I mentioned. I met with Brad Scott. Um, really happy with, with the way that they presented how I could contribute um, some of their players and you know Boomer Harvey and Drew Petrie just to name a couple. I thought oh, okay, this is going to be pretty cool. So that was the next chapter. It was my turn to move on. I went to the Kangas for three years. We played finals for three years, and I loved my time there. Did the situation at Essendon at the time
2: come into your thinking if you were weighing up uh... moving between the two clubs?
1: I was on holiday, so I'd organised an end-of-season holiday with my, maybe a fiance, maybe wife at that time, I'm trying to get my years right. Can't get that one wrong. Yeah, we can't get that one wrong. And we were we were overseas, Langkawi, I think we were. And I had the, the choice, and I'd met with both Essendon and North Melbourne. To, the, to probably say that it was the defining factor is wrong because I didn't know what was going to happen with those Essendon players, but it definitely didn't do any, you know, it was probably more the doubt rather than, well, they're going to lose 30-odd of their best plays, you know, at some stage in the next year. But just on pure merits, I went with North Melbourne. It's pretty much as simple as that. Where did I think I could fit in better? Where could I contribute more? Um, Who I thought could play finals? Now, the funny bit is we actually played the Bombers in the first final 2014, that must be. And uh, we end up winning the game. So I'm not saying that was the right decision. I'm Not saying that that was the you know the, the the definitive point for yes or no. But it was just funny that we end up meeting each other at the end of the year anyway. So 14, you go on and play in a prelim at North. Yeah, 15, a prelim again at
2: North. Did you did you ever feel that North Melbourne team? in either of those two years could contend for the premiership or did you feel like Uh, you're a a step off the big boys? Yeah,
1: it's funny you mention that. I I think in my heart of hearts, and this doesn't mean that I tried any less, it doesn't mean that I didn't contribute any more, I just don't know if that team, you know, a lot of things would have had to have gone right if we were to get to grand final day. But I just felt like, maybe in hindsight more than anything, that was pretty much our max. Like, we, we maxed out, and we had a, a group, particularly inside midfield group, that was suited to finals football. And we know that it changes a little bit, but Andrew Swallow, Ben Cunnington, Jack Zeeble, th- three particular names that suit finals football. They're big bodies that love contested football. So we were almost more built to that, and we had a myself and a handful of other guys probably on the periphery that were sort of complementing what they were doing inside. But I think, I mean, we got thumped. I can't remember the exact number. That first year, 2014, we played Sydney up there at um, yeah, Olympia. They thumped us, mate. They were, I mean, it was um, Tippett, I reckon, yeah. and Buddy. Yeah. And they just ripped us a new one. So you walk off that game. I reckon the margin was 75 odd yeah, it's points, about 70 from, points. Yeah, yep. We got thumped. So you walk off going, we're, we're an okay team. They're just better. Like, they are just a 10 goal better team than us. So you can't do much about that. We played them the next year with our buddy, and we beat them up there. Went to the West, and we played the Eagles. And I reckon we lost by a couple of goals. It wasn't much of a margin. But once again, I mean, was that team ever going to go on and win the flag the following week? I don't know, but I thought we probably got as much out of our group as we could. That, that's sort of how I'd sum that up. And Then you go to my last year of footy, 2016. We start off like a house on fire. I think we won 10 or 11 yep, in, 10 a in a row. We're on fire. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't touch us. But I also knew at that stage, we weren't playing great footy. We'd had a couple of close wins, which was fantastic. Great to get some confidence and keep the, the win column ticking over. But we weren't exceptional. And I reckon from memory, Jules, we were 10-0. and 0, But I reckon we were on about the third or fourth line of betting for the Premiership. So it's almost like the punters knew that it was a false economy and then ultimately they were probably right i think we went about 50% win loss ratio for the remainder of that year and then got absolutely thumped by the crows in that first final but then before you even get to the finals there's the kangaroo cull yeah. yourself brent harvey
2: drew petrie and michael Ferrito. yeah before the end of the home and away so there's a lot of criticism about the timing mm. from north melbourne in terms of that decision did you feel were you comfortable with the timing and B, did you feel like your time had come to an end too quickly yeah
1: um, I was okay with So to sort of go to the end before we go back to the start, I was okay with the way that it was handled. Other people were more offended than what probably the four of us were. As a player, all I've ever asked, and I think most players, is just honesty. You know, we're big boys. I mean, we've been in the industry for long enough to know how it sort of works. And I don't think it was ever going to impact particularly my performance. I wasn't going to turn my toes up and say I've been de- delisted. I'm not going to try for the next two or three weeks. I think the story goes, and I need to be clear on this, or probably need to be accurate. I reckon it was Boomer that was asking for more of an answer. Now, you also know when I was 32 or 33, Boomer was about 55 years ago, <laughs> so it was a little bit different. But when you haven't been offered a contract, I felt like my I'd been playing some okay football. I don't know my exact stats, Jules. You probably know them better than I do but my numbers were okay. I was contributing. I'd been playing multiple roles, went to halfback for pretty much the first time in my career to support the, you know, all those little things. So you've got one man on your shoulder for about 10 weeks when you haven't got a contract for next year. And the little man on your shoulder saying, how can they delist you? How can they move you on? You know, they need you. You're playing good football. You know, your effort's great. You're running as well as you ever have and you're getting enough of the footy. But then you've got the other man on the shoulder, the reality saying, well, you haven't been offered a contract if they really wanted you, they probably would have put something to you already. And even if it was a, a low ball offer, it's still something, but we hadn't got that. So then you start to you know, work your way through it and you start to you know, realize what's going to happen. So it was a Tuesday afternoon. We had a half day on a Tuesday. It's more of a recovery day. We just played Sydney down at Tasmania. I reckon we lost by about a kick. I had a, a decent game. I think I even kicked a couple of goals, which was rare <laughs> for <laughs> me. So I was like, I must have had a half decent day here. And... It was on a Tuesday afternoon I'd left the football club and on my way out I crossed paths with Boomer and he looked a bit flat and I said everything alright or you know what's happening and he just said ah oh, thumbs down not playing and I remember thinking I remember being confused going well I don't know if that means that he's out they're keeping me or we're all in it together I did there was no one had ever told us so how are we to work through that scenario got home um I was living on the other side of town, so it's you know 40-minute drive from the footy club, 45-minute drive, and I got a call from from Brad Scott on a <laughs> Tuesday afternoon. I'm like, oh, here we go. And I instantly knew. He said, hey, how are you? What are you up to? I said, I am just got home, about to go pick up my son who was at daycare. I only had one child at that time. He said, oh, maybe could you get your wife to pick up your son? Can I come around for a coffee? I was like, <laughs> I'm like, sure. Come on over. So I called my wife. I said, can you finish up work a touch early, pick up... Our young son, um, Brad Scott's coming over. You know, this is it. And you sort of have that lump in your throat a little bit and you get emotional again. And... But you're also putting in perspective saying, I've had a good run. Like I've been doing this for 15 years. You know, Could I do it for much longer? Yeah, maybe, you know, one or two. Would I be at the same level? Probably not, but I can contribute. Do I want to do it for the rest of my life? Yeah, I do. Because I love football. And still, still I just, yeah, I love the game. Always have. Never had an issue with going to training. And then you have... Flashes off. I don't get to do that anymore. That's pretty sad that I don't get to go to training. I don't get to sit in a locker room. I don't get to travel. Anyway, Brad Scott comes over. I'll get through this quick for you, Jules. Brad Scott (laughs) comes over. And we just built a new house, and he sits down, and he's talking about the Sonos surround sound. I thought, oh, God, here we go, small talk. (laughs) And uh, I thought, I'm not even going to offer him a coffee, I said, because if he's going to de-list me, he can just have a glass of water. That's (laughs) how I'm (laughs) So anyway, but Brad was good. I mean, I I got along with him so well, Um, maybe because I was a bit older when I got to the football club. I know he respected what I'd done at the Saints. I know he respected Ross Lyon as a coach. So we often had... Probably conversations like you and I are now that it was just open. You know, have you got a minute, Brad? I've got 10. What do you want to talk about? So we're talking about football and coaching and the team. It was. I was never intimidated by Brad because I hadn't grown up nervous, you know, and I always felt that he was forthcoming in, you know, asking me questions as well. So I reckon there was even a game, Jules, where I must have played poorly or something had happened, and he said to me post-game, What would Ross Lyon say about that? (laughs) I was like, like, you got me. That's all I need to hear because he understands, you know, all, all that part of the game. Anyway, so he complimented me. So this is going back to sitting on our couch in our house. He complimented me, said, I thought you were really good on the weekend against Sydney, probably your best game for the club for quite a while. You know, I see you, you know, this, this and this. And it was almost like that Eminem eight mile where he has that last battle where all he does is compliment the other person. So when it came to telling me, you know, but you just can't deal with North Melbourne, I had no rebuttal. I had no, but I played well on the weekend, but I've contributed, but I play multiple roles. He'd already covered all those bases, but I also got it. And the beauty of that conversation, and I really appreciate this. It was just him and I, he probably was there for an hour. And because I wasn't crying, you know, I wasn't overly emotional in regards to that, we were able to talk. You know, And I actually walked away, shook his hand as he left the door, and I think he might have just crossed paths with my wife who was just getting home at the same time. He's, you know, knew her by name and all that sort of stuff, You know, crossed paths for three years. But I shut the door and I said, I'm done, but I'm not angry. Like, I'm sad that I don't get to do what I love that has always just been a pleasure to do, but I'm not angry at it. It, it has to happen. And if it wasn't that time, it was probably going to be 12 months later anyway. I was really... Pre- 15 years, solid, 322 games... That's enough football. Did I get a premiership? No. Does it make me sad? Absolutely. But I had a good go. I had a had a good run at it. And just finally, the, the transition into the media.
2: Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a competitive game for former players that want to do it. Mm. When you sat down and thought about
1: do you think, I need a point of difference here? How do you sort of attack that next stage of your life? Yeah, well, it's, it's probably become more popular now than what it even was. Probably 2005, I think, was probably the first time I did the footy show, the Channel 9 football show. Enjoyed it. Always loved talking about the game. Um, Always loved expressing a bit of an opinion. Now, as a player, you've got to be a little bit delicate because you can't give away too much. Otherwise, the club uh, will will stamp on that pretty quickly. I always enjoyed it. So I did two different courses. I did one when I was playing, and then I did one, must be my first year out of football. So two different. I thought if I ever get the opportunity to get involved in media, I need to have some sort of training. Now, short courses, a little bit of live experience as well. I enjoyed it. Now, I never saw media as easy, and I think that's what some people, and you know this, Jules, as well, particularly players think, you know, what are you going to do when you finish football? There's two answers. Well, I've played enough football, so I'm either going to get into media or property development. <laughs> every, play, <laughs> every player just wants to subdivide a block, you know, build two new houses, walk away with half a million and do that every year for the rest of their life. Reality is it's not quite like that. So I've, I've built up some really good um relationships with different um, people in regards to media, that if I was ever given the opportunity that I could analyse games of football for a living post-football, that I needed to be, one, be prepared for it. So that's why I went and did some courses just to learn a little bit more about it. But also I needed to, you know, build those relationships. And I've been so fortunate. You know, I sort of sounds a bit corny. I've been doing it for four or five years, whatever it is now that I've been finished footy. I love it. I absolutely love going to watch live sport, analysing football, and talking about the game that I've always loved, from you know personal experiences and adding some stories in in there, but also what players are going through on a daily basis, I, I've I I never don't appreciate what I've got, and I love it.
2: Yeah, and Nick, you're doing a great job. Great to catch up today. It was a wonderful career. So many individual accolades and, and so close uh, to those premierships. But 24 finals, three grand finals and seven prelims. It's a, it's a lot of footy uh, on the big stage. And we've got to say, too, well done to your young boy, Jim, yeah, who's been sitting in the, the room next door and has
1: not battered an eyelid. He's, so he's, uh, he's well trained. He's a good kid. He's about to turn six. He's just started uh, prep. And he gets uh, a day off a week to regroup, they call that, Jules. So he's having a regroup day. So we're going to spend some time together. You know what he just said to me? He said to me this morning, Dad, can we go to the driving range? So talk about teaching them early and teaching them well. This boy is on the right track. I like him. I like him.
2: <laughs> ah, beautiful. Well done, Jude, and well done, Nick. And uh, thanks for your time. Always good to see you. Thanks a lot. And thank you for joining us. Also, you've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers funeral, Celebrating lives. Jump online to find them at Tobin Brothers com.au and we'll catch you next time. We celebrate the life of another sporting icon. It's Ty Powers Big Footy Final Sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyota passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Tyre Powers Big Footy Final Sale can't last. Visit TyPower.com.au now.